The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We're learning about all sorts of approaches, how to keep well and how to be proactive in our health. And today we're going to learn about some techniques that help augment our health that we can use for ourselves and on other people. It's very interesting practice. It's called neurolinguistic programming, but this is applied to medicine, so it's medical neurolinguistic programming. So this is a technique that should be a lot of fun. So I have two guests today. One is Dr. Halid Khan, and the other is Garner Thompson. Garner Thompson is an NLP master practitioner and master trainer. He's the creator of the Pioneer Medical NLP program. This, this program is a field developed out of the work of Richard, Dr. Richard Bandler, who integrated neurolinguistic programming, solution-oriented psychotherapy, and advanced communication skills into mainstream medical practice. In 1998, he founded the Society for Medical NLP with the support of Dr. Bandler and the clinical advisor and GP, that's general practitioner, trainer, Dr. Halid Khan. He assembled a group of professional advisors, including specialists in primary care and consultant physicians in pain management, surgery, anesthetics, care of the elderly, psychiatry, pediatrics, nutrition, and nursing, all of whom trained with him in medical NLP and communication consulting skills. Since then, he's taught hundreds of doctors, dentists, psychologists, psychiatrists, nurses, and allied health professionals from the UK, continental Europe, China, America, Australia, Canada, India. He's been a regular guest and presenter on British radio and television and is the author of Magic and Practice, Introducing Medical NLP, The Art of Science and Language in Healing and Health. And he's a co-author with Dr. Richard Bandler of The Secrets of Being Happy, The Technology of Hope, Health, and Harmony. And is the editor of Dr. Bandler's best-selling book on hypnosis, Transformation. He's currently working on another book. With us also, we have Dr. Halid Khan, who gave a fantastic talk last summer in London. And he's a primary care physician in the United Kingdom. He's a general practitioner trainer undergraduate tutor for King's College London School of Medicine, and a former community pharmacist and licensed medical NLP master practitioner and NLP trainer. He's a fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners, fellow of the steering committee and member for the Chinese Medical Institute and Registrar, and NLP master practitioner and trainer. Dr. Khan is a co-founder with Garner Thompson of the Medical 
of this, pardon me, the Society of Medical NLP and is the author of Mnemonics and Study Tips for Medical Students, which is currently in press. So welcome, folks. Welcome to our show. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yes. So first, let's start out with what is neurolinguistic programming? Okay. Well, as the as the name suggests, um, it's the uh, study basically of the effect of language. That's the linguistic bit on neurology. Uh, that's the neuro bits, and programming is on behavior. So the the, the theory back in the seventies when they developed um, NLP uh, originally was uh, the question was what was the influence of language. Um, on people's neurology and how could their behavior change. So essentially, that's in a nutshell. It's been described as many different things. Um, you know, they talk about these, the study of excellence and so on and so forth. But that's the, 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 in a nutshell, basically, that's what it is. So how does language affect our neurology and our neurons and our behavior? Uh, language has, um, so, hello, Susan, it's Khaled. Uh, language has uh, profound uh, influence in all of these. And when we talk about language, we're talking about communication and all aspects of communication, not just the language, not just the verbal, uh, in fact, not just the nonverbal elements either, the whole in its entirety. Uh, we know, for example, language can affect people's outcomes measurably. Um, if uh, you give a set of suggestions to people, uh, for example, in one study, uh, people were shown uh, images of cool uh, settings, ice, and so on. And these patients were Burns patients, and they uh, made a profound uh, recovery, improvement in their recovery. Uh, it's a really interesting story, um, not a story, a study, in fact, that Garner did that, uh, I'm, re- that I'm particularly uh, keen on, where they were looking at, uh, in a cardiac ward, they were looking at patients discharging. And they noticed that some patients were being discharged and doing better than another group. Uh, they looked at all the possibilities for this, and having uh, accounted for everything, they didn't understand why in a particular ward, a particular part of the ward, patients were doing better. They then looked at uh, the nurses, how the nurses were communicating with these patients, and they found that the key was certain nurses had better outcomes than others. Uh, on further examination, um, the, they observed that nurses were using language patterns, but, uh, primarily a pattern we call presuppositions. The nurses were saying things like, what, you still here? Uh, in a joking manner, in a friendly manner. They were saying things like, so when you're out of here, what will you be doing? Where will you go afterwards? When are you going back to work? Um, where do you think you'll go for your next holiday? And of course, these statements presuppose that patients are going to get better and then they're going to be doing activities like their holidays, like going back to work. And by using these sort of statements, it affects our neurology. The brain has to think that, hold on, I'm away from this ward, I'm recovered and I'm doing something. So that's an example of how the language affects neurology and affects healing. Gone? Yes, well, um, there was in the 80s particularly, there was a real interest in psychoneuroimmunology. And nobody seemed to be bothered at all by the fact that the brain could affect the immune system, and in fact, vice versa. Uh, Everybody took that for granted. But the question that I asked myself and that that motivated a lot of this work was, where does the brain get the data from, the information from, in order to communicate with the immune system? And uh, at that stage, probably the only person who was doing any work in this area was um, uh, Professor Candace Pert, who you probably know of as the author of The Molecules of Emotion. 
And um, as she put it, we're in a, we're, we're, we bathe in the sea of, of data, of information. So we're taking in information very often uh, in the form of language. And as Khaled says, it's, uh, it's not just um, verbal language, it's nonverbal, it's the whole symbol system. And that gets translated into a cascade of neurochemicals, which the ligands lock in onto the, onto the, the cells throughout the body, and that essentially um, directly affects the, the, uh, the response. So that's the, <laughs> the long way around, perhaps, the explanation of where language uh, can influence the, neuro- the, 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 the nervous system. What if the language were inconsistent with the body language, like somebody were frowning, frowning, and they said, uh, oh, when you get out of here, you're going to do much better. So the body language and the tone, will that have an effect on what the brain does? Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, everybody has heard about the placebo effect, but we also have the nocebo effect. Um, and uh, it's very true that... Um, uh, that any kind of inconsistency like that can uh, either just negate um, the 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 um, the effect, uh, or it can in fact make it worse. It can create problems. Um, in Birmingham, we have one of our uh, one of the people we trained. Um, he's a consultant um, anesthetist or um, anesthesiologist, I think you call it in America. Anesthesiologist. And anesthesiologist. Sorry, we call him anesthetist. Well, anyway. Um, he was uh, very keen on this. He trained all his staff in using the right kind of language, and they reduced the amount of um, medication, perioperative medication, down to about 30% of what they were using before. Um, and then it suddenly shot up, and they found out that um, people were being resistant even to morphine, to all sorts of, of, um, uh, of drugs that were being um, administered at the time. And they got really panicky. They thought there was some failure in the quality of the medication. And then they did, he, because we train people to look and to watch and to observe, uh, he um, uh, looked around and, and took his time and watched and waited. And he discovered that they had somebody, a newcomer, and he was talking to the patients and he was saying to them, now, you know, this is a very serious operation. You must understand that you're going to be out of action for at least five, um, five weeks. And uh, you're going to have a lot of pain, so you're probably going to have to take medita- medication, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it overrode even the, 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 uh, the most powerful uh, opioids that they had at the time. So we're very conscious of the fact that this can work both ways. And if people are inconsistent, if, as you say, the body language doesn't match the message, um, the patient will pick it up. And at the best will be confused, at the worst will be, um, uh, this, the situation may be worsened. At what level, where in the body will they be confused? Well, I, I think it's probably pre-conscious or unconscious. I don't think that it's going to be uh, a very conscious thing. Although, um, there was some really interesting work by um, uh, Nalini Ambadi, I think it was, where she took uh, snatches of, of uh, a tenth of a second um, of uh, doctors talking. Just a tenth of a second of them talking. And among those were some doctors who'd been sued and these little fragments, these little clips were shown to, to um, patients and they were asked to identify the person they would trust and the person they didn't trust. And even though they had no co- idea of the context, they had not uh, been in um, possession of the facts, uh, they almost exclusively um, uh, identified the person, the, patient, the, the doctor who'd been sued. So it does work on, a, on, a, on an unconscious level, a very rapid unconscious level. So how does this work? How does um, a message 
translate into neuroactivity? Well, I think the, 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 the simple answer is the Pertz model, the Candace Pertz model, that um, we have instead of uh, when, when, when the, the waveforms, if you like, hit, it's not simply, uh, it doesn't simply be, um, they're not simply uh, translated into behaviors, but they go through this cascade of, of neurochemicals, uh, all these neuropeptides and various other chemicals that affect uh, pretty well every, every um, cell in the body. Because what we have, we have, um, and this is a relatively recent discovery, um, we have receptors uh, for all sorts of things that we didn't realize we had before. For example, Candace Pert identified the opioid re receptor. Now, that implies one of two things. If we have a receptor for, for opiates, what does that mean? It means, you know, one of two things that uh, um, evolution or God, depending on which you believe in, was a pusher or we are capable of creating our own opiates in order to to um, uh, affect our, our the, the balance of our um, our pain responses. So we have all these receptors, uh, and uh, depending on how the the, the uh, ligands lock into those receptors, um, dictates how the, uh, the the quality of the behaviour and the subjective experience, and indeed the health. This is interesting because in mid-December we had Dr. David Spiegel on, who talked, who's the head of the complementary medicine group at Stanford, and talked right. on hypnosis. And he said that just the way you phrase things, different parts of the brain will react. And this is shown with neuroscans and research. So that's kind of interesting. Well, I mean, our attitude is pretty much everything is hypnosis because uh, uh, people they they impart instructions and injunctions uh, we do to each other all the time without realizing and the problem is it's pretty random a lot of the time but if it's um, and 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 if you get a patient who is under stress and in trouble in pain um, usually this if there's a level of anxiety usually they're going to be highly suggestible that's one of the things that the North Koreans discovered many years ago during the Korean War how to brainwash uh, prisoners so easily is to keep them on the back foot um, so we have that, and we should be aware of the fact that when patients turn up, they're inevitably in some kind of crisis of one kind or another. So they're highly suggestible. And if I can give um, two little examples, one is um, the, the elderly mother uh, of a friend of mine. She was uh, she went for a checkup to her, her doctor, a very young new doctor. And after the checkup, he said, "You're in very good condition." Um, but, you know, you are 84 years old, so I think what you should do, you should hold on to your husband's arm wherever you go. And she was very annoyed about this. And she said, um, well, we've been married for 60 years and I'm not going to, I didn't hold on, his, uh, hold on to his arm then. I'm not going to start holding on to his arm now. And he said, well, you know, if you do this, there's a chance you can fall and break your hip. She said, nonsense. Walked out of the practice, down the front steps, slipped and broke her hip. Um, wow. <laughs> the other example that we had, um, it's many years ago when AIDS first materialized. And interestingly, I don't know if you've observed this, but every time there's something new that comes up, almost instantaneously there's experts. Um, and AIDS was, as we all know, was a completely new um, disease as far as anybody had, uh, knew, had known at that time. And at that time, the survival rate was um, between diagnosis and death, the, 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 the the gap between um, diagnosis and death was around about 2.5 years. And I was present at um, a discussion with two patients who were um, asymptomatic. 
they tested positive, but they were asymptomatic, and that was very unusual. Now, from my point of view, these would be the outliers that we should be interested in. But the, um, the, the expert, the ruling expert at the time, said to these two guys, um, you know what, um, technically you shouldn't even be here. You've well passed your, your survival oh, rate. Oh, no. Uh, and within a week, both of them were dead. Oh, so no. We can't prove that that's the case, but it certainly did not help. So uh, are you saying that everything is hypnosis? Because Dr. David Spiegel cited several studies where using hypnotic induction, there was fewer needs for pain meds, uh, children tolerated uh, awful procedures more readily, money was saved, staff was less traumatized. So are you saying everything is hypnosis? Is this a subset of hypnosis or how does it differ? No, I mean, I think that uh, there's such a thing as formal hypnosis and then there's informal hypnosis. Um, and as I say, we are in, if, you, if you define hypnosis as influence, then we are influencing or trying to influence each other all the time. Um, but the thing about hypnosis is in spite of the, 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 uh, the research that's being done on it recently, we're still in the position where, um, as I think, uh, I think I said in Magic in Practice, where hypnosis is something... Uh, that nobody really understands, but about which everybody has an opinion. <laughs> so um, I think that at some level or other, yes, I think uh, we can we can safely. We certainly train our people to regard everything they say as uh, to be to, to be looked at and to be um, uh, you know, carefully phrased for that reason, in the same way that they would if they were actually formally doing uh, hypnosis. So what is medical NLP? Uh, yeah, um, medical NLP is a, or it was influenced by NLP, NLP, which was we explained earlier. Medical NLP took that as an organizing principle. And uh, we specifically wanted to look in the healthcare sector, and we wanted to look at what the evidence was around. We borrowed from uh, neurology, we borrowed from psychology, we borrowed from medicine, from cellular biology. Uh, we particularly our, our book Magic and Practice has got um, something like 400 citations in this because we wanted to take what was useful from from neurolinguistic programming and put it in a form that was that could be used by practitioners and we wanted to look at practical ways of using it and ways that uh, had some basis in evidence. What what the last 20 years has seen an explosion in the amount of studies going on. We have fMRI scans. Uh, and so on, we um, can look at uh, uh, studies. There's so much research out there, and we've taken it together from several sources. Ghana has done particularly some, uh, he's been working on this for decades, really, and uh, put together in a workable uh, set of techniques uh, that uh, can be used in, in the healthcare setting. Yeah. Yes, but I think the thing, the important thing to me was. Um, uh, the people that, well, little anecdote first. Um, when I was 18 months old, um, my mother was widowed and she had two little boys to bring up and no support whatsoever. 18 months after that, uh, she developed breast cancer. Oh. And in those, and that's not actually that uncommon. There seems to be some kind of correlation uh, between extreme shock and, and um, breast cancer in certain women. But in any event, um, in those days, they considered um, uh, it very cruel to tell people. They considered it much kinder to hide the fact from them that they had cancer and that it was terminal. But my mother was, you know, she was an intelligent woman. And she eventually wrung the truth out from her surgeon. 
And she said to the surgeon, well, you know, you've got to give me some sort of idea. And um, he said to her, well, look, I'll be honest with you since you asked. Go home, find somewhere to look after your children because you're not going to be here. Oh. Time. And my mother, who was a difficult person at the best of times, was incandescent with rage. She discharged herself uh, from hospital. She said, I don't have time to die. I've got two children to bring up. And she discharged herself from hospital um, and did her best to resume life you know, as, as, as she'd lived it before. Um, she did die, but 42 years later, it was something completely different. So wow. the idea of that self-correction that takes place, the so-called, you know, they're often dismissed by medicine. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that interested me. So I started studying these, remark- these exceptional healers or remarkable healers. And these are people who recover uh, at a rate that's um, unexpected. Um, they're the spontaneous remission people. Uh, they're people who everybody's given up on and somehow miraculously they turn it around. But uh, the remarkable healers are also the doctors and the health practitioners who are good, somehow better than their colleagues at um, uh, at, at getting uh, positive and, and, and good, strong and powerful uh, clinical outcomes. And through that, I started looking at certain qualities that they had, that they shared. And that was the basis of where the development of medical NLP came from. So how does medical NLP differ from NLP, except that it's obviously tailored to help us with our healing? Well, I mean, medical um, NLP is, if you like, I mean, sometimes it's taught as a business um, uh, method, methodology. Um, but generally speaking, it's taught, um, NLP is taught sort of generically. And it's more or less up to the individual to uh, apply it. Um, in my own experience uh, in, in this, and my background is social psychology and then um, psychotherapy and then NLP. Um, in my own experience, what I started seeing was people having fantastic enthusiasm, doing the training, doing the, the courses. Virtually, you could see them, you know, on, on the last day, come running out you know, and then skidding to a halt and kind of going, now what? Because the actually day-to-day application is not always um, taught, you see. So it was there, and there was not enough within NLP. But um, Dr. Bandler said to me when we had many, many discussions, I spent a year with him, and uh, he said to me one day, he said, you've got to go out and create your own field. Um, and he said, um, and this is essentially, you know, um, how, how this came about. But it differs because it's essentially it's about application. It's about discovering new ways and looking for new ways of doing things and applying this knowledge. And the NLP part of it, as Scullet said earlier on, acts as, a, as an organizing principle. Um, Richard once said something to me which stuck in my mind. He said, NLP really is a technique to create other techniques. And that's the way that it's been used. So what so, is the key of these people who self-corrected? I mean, it'd be wonderful if we can all self-correct and say, oh, doctor, you're full of it. I'm going to get better. What is the key for these people? And we can use this so we can get well. Actually, you've said something. You've said something there when you said, doctor, you're full of it. Because um, uh, one of the characteristics of people who, who um, uh, recover better or live longer, um, uh, despite the prognosis, is the fact that they tend to be... Um, uh, they tend to want to take control of their own uh, processes. This is often defined as being a heart sink patient. 
But here's the news, and I'm always telling my my doctors, I'm saying heart sync patients live longer. They don't just it just doesn't even just doesn't simply feel as though they live longer. They really do live longer. What is a heart sync patient? Uh, that's the patient that's described. Um, some doctors use that term with a patient who's taking up their time and irritating them and going through the same thing, <laughs> not listening, and the heart sinks. You know when they when they oh uh, that kind of sync. I thought it was S Y N C. H. Okay. Now, the second person we had somebody else who did that. That's brilliant. I prefer that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like heart math and uh, heart rate variability, which can help with healing. That's why I was asking. Indeed, and that's we use those tools very much. You know, yes. HRV, HRV, for example. Okay, so it's okay. So it's self-efficacy, and um, you're not going to tell me what to do. And which physicians have the better outcomes? You say some do. Well, physicians who think past the 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 um, the condition, past the illness, or past the disease, um, you know, most treatments end when the patient is fixed, if they are fixed, um, and that's pretty much it. Or they referred on to something else, and it's outsourced to some sort of other department. But the ones who, as Khaled said, when we were talking about the nurses, they tend to have an outcome orientation. They tend to be thinking in terms of what is life going to be like for these people beyond this. And there seems to be something that increases people's um, ability to deal with the ups and downs uh, of, of, um, of illness uh, and to cope with them and to cope better when they know that there's life beyond the disease. The other thing is, and this sounds very strange, most people don't know how to be well if they've had a chronic condition. Because they've been so stuck in it, it's been defined, they've become, as Khaled is always uh, finding in his practice, they become the diagnosis. So um, doctors who think beyond this, who think in terms of, of people being proactive, people being um, having a life, as I say, that, that, that uh, exists and will continue beyond the disease, um, have a much better outcome. Well, we're coming up to a break now, so we'll be back and we will continue this discussion on medical NLP when we return. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. 
We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. We've got Garner Thompson and Dr. Halid Khan, both from the UK and both experts in uh, medical NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming. Now, this is a fascinating field because the mind is something that can play a role in healing beyond what we can see and touch. And that, to me, is the most interesting. I mean, the fact that we can make suggestions and placebo and people can get well or we can be negative and we negatively impact their health or we can even sentence them to a death sentence by saying, oh, if you do such and such, you're going to die. So it's very intriguing to me, the role of the mind and the psyche and perhaps something even bigger. So, I mean, one thing that was very interesting to me about NLP is that um, in forms of communications, for example, in relationships or business relationships, people seem to have different modalities. Some uh, kind of use, you can tell by some people use a lot of words involving vision or feeling or sound. And if you connect with them on that level, it seems like the person, the other, the recipient doesn't have to work hard at understanding you, and there's an automatic um, synchronicity. So, can you tell us about that? Well, that's the um, let me say that's the theory, and it's up to up to point. Yes, it it works, um, but I think it's uh, in many ways it's oversimplified, because uh, if you really do step back, you'll find that uh, people do tend to use more than one modality, although they may well favor one. But the problem is that um, you might make a connection with people by talking using the same, uh, say, a visual modality or um, an auditory one, depending on what they But how do you move them forward on that? Because for every modality that they have, there are two missing. And this is where people become paralyzed and become caught, is that they lose the ability to have um, flexibility uh, so they might have a very strong, for example, patients will come very often with a kinesthetic, a very strong kinesthetic, which figures because they're in pain. But they may not be able to see their way clear or feel what it is they need to, to do next. Well, I'd like to take a little sidestep here. I mean, yeah. kinesthetic means like you're feeling, so, and these people big. tend to use words like I feel yeah. or, you know, it hurts, whereas people who uh, operate in a visual mode might say things like it seems, it looks like, it appears, and people who might be on an auditory um, way of functioning might say sounds like but yes of course we can have more than one and one might be major and we could flip back and forth but um, it, it this is a very interesting thing because uh, what I've read about NLP if you want to make somebody like you or connect you mimic their gestures you may even dress like them and if they're using uh, words associated with one modality you use those words to communicate back for example, with my attending, I made the mistake of saying, well, this doesn't feel right, and she wanted to rip me another for using <laughs> my gut and feelings. So now I just say I think when I'm around her. Sure. No, I mean, that's, 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 uh, that's true. But it does for us, maybe I'm just permanently and, and, and congenitally lazy, but I find that's a very long way around uh, to get that kind of rapport or cord. We have a much faster way, and I, I'm, please feel free to try it out if you like. And there are three, possibly four steps to it. And it works like this. When you meet the person for the first time, look at them. And by look at them, I mean 
look at them in extent to, to, to the degree that you can afterwards uh, uh, remember the color of their eyes. So make a mental note of the color of the eyes when you look at them. That's step one. Um, step two is smile. And by smile, I mean people should smile a full face smile. You know, what, what's known in psychology is a Duchenne smile. Uh, not the social smile that you often get in the, in the in the health professions. The third step is it may sound a little airy fairy this, but you you mentally send um, a, a a positive message mentally only, not not verbally. Mentally create a positive image of the person you're speaking to, so that there's a positive outcome for them. The fourth option is, um, I mean, those three are necessary. The fourth is an option, and that's whether you shake hands or not. And if you shake hands, it's nothing to do with the strength or power of the of the shake. It's that there's a web-to-web contact, you know, the web between thumb and finger, thumb and forefinger, that they contact with those the same web of the the, the web of the other person. Um, so you're looking at the person; they feel looked at. You are um, uh, sending a, at least you're you're uh, making mental note of their eye color, right? And then um, if you follow the other two steps, then everything happens that they, it seems to happen that they log in to your way of thinking much more quickly. That sounds wonderful because I imagine part of that would be when you've got a heart-to-heart connection, there's yes. an energy that goes back and forth and you yes. just naturally find some, feel on that energy level rather than absolutely. trying to think with our left brain, which mucks everything up. Absolutely, absolutely. And it does seem to work. And then people find, I mean, they take to it really well. Mm. Um, we found the doctors that we've worked with, you know, I initially thought when we first started working with this, I thought that they'd be a little bit iffy about it. But they love it. You know, and one hospital doctor who has very good um, rapport with his patients, I asked him what positive image he sent. And he said, oh, I imagine all my patients jumping out of bed, all dressed in pink pajamas, jumping up and down on their beds like children. <laughs> now, if we think like that about the person we're in front of, it changes our demeanor. Yeah. And as Khaled mm-hmm. said, we're communicating on not just on a on a on a on a, um, a verbal level, but on a a non-verbal level as well. Yeah, yeah. It changes our attitude on the inside. It changes. It helps facilitate changing our interaction with the person with the people we're with. So uh, this could be like an energetic interconnection because some of the studies have shown with psychotherapists is the people who have the longest experience tend to have better results, but that's perhaps because they're more intuitive and they're kind of following the energy and going with it rather than the newbies who are busy trying to think, think, think and remember what the manual said. So is this kind of an energetic connection? I think you're... Absolutely, and I mean, it brings us to the question of what is energy, and the answer is probably everything. Uh, but yes, uh, I, I would I would agree entirely with that. There are some studies. There's one study particularly which refer, which I refer to in magic and practice, um, which says that the if there's a, a a good connection, solid connection between the practitioner and the patient, uh, that accounts for seventy two percent of the outcome, regardless of what it is that they are doing, regardless of the intervention they're using. It's 72% is the relationship. So for the practitioner, is it the the people that have the best results, they get more heart-to-heart and they're trying to connect on that completely. level? Completely, completely. And how that, can we do that for ourselves and for our loved ones? Well, I mean, I think we need to stay awake. You know, when Khaled did the talk um, that you were at um, in London um, last year, no, earlier this, this year, this year yeah. uh, you know, he spoke about... Um, 
uh, about various studies that had been done uh, about um, you know by by Ellen Langer, and Ellen Langer is one of the people who basically she used in the 70s the term mindfulness, which has now become um, very kind of. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's kind of fashionable and I think the currency has been a bit devalued but she simply meant uh, about staying awake staying aware and um, this is what we need to do if we go mindless in our relationships and we we resort to our automatic behaviors um, if we are mindless about looking after ourselves if we don't pay attention to the the responses in our bodies uh, then the situation and it doesn't stay the same it gets worse and for example people who smoke or or say uh, someone with bulimia um, if they stay awake if they stay aware during the particular action they can't complete the action because the body rebels too much if the person is aware of the smoke coming into the lungs and going down into the lungs and what it feels like so they have to go unconscious in order to complete those anything which is um, damaging to the body we tend to need to go unconscious while we do it. Bulimics often, you know, they report opening the fridge door, not remembering anything until they're lying on the floor having eaten everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, the thing is about learning to, to be present, and that takes an action. It takes work because, um, again, as, as, as Ellen Langer says, it's a lovely statement. She says, the thing is we do need to turn up. We do need to... to um, uh, to be consciously uh, aware that we need to do this work because if you're not here, you're not here to know you're not here. So it's very important that we actually make appointments with ourselves to to pay attention to what it is we're doing right at the moment. But there must be more than that. So we can be aware of what's going on and try to be aware of what's going on with the patient, but that can be a very thinking, right, a left brain activity. So how can we use this mindfulness to help, um, and as a part of NLP, to help us get well and help others get well? In terms of medical NLP, because I don't think it's part of NLP as far as I know at all, but as part, in medical NLP, what we encourage people to do um, when we talk about being mindful is the phrase we often use is, is just notice what's different and better. So if you're seeing someone, supposing you, 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 you're consulting with somebody, or you are talking to your child who's going to school and been having trouble uh, at school. And the injunction is not come back and, you know, and tell me what went wrong, but just notice what's different and what's better. That opens up new categories in the mind. And when, they, when, when these new categories open up, then the new resources come into play. And it's, it's almost automatic when that happens. So by noticing you know, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old marriage, for example, noticing what's new, what's different and what's better about seeing the partner that day. How often do we do that? Mm. We go unconscious, so we need to start to come back. And that, that, that awareness uh, is, uh, is very therapeutic in and of itself. It's very, very rich in, to use your phrase, in, in, in energy connections, very strong, very rich. Okay. Can you give us some examples on how to use this, like choose something, depression, anxiety, or you can talk about Takasuba syndrome. Give us some examples on how we can use this to help ourselves and others or our clients get well. Well, anxiety is a very good um, example, I think. Um, we're often saying to, to people when, 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 they, um, when they present with anxiety, we're often pointing out to them that uh, in the right context, anxiety is a good thing. 
you know, if you were, if they were walking home late at night um, by themselves and there was a shortcut through a dark alley, I'd want them to be anxious because that could save their lives. The problem is, is that it's too exaggerated, it's too uh, automatic, too automated. And that's the key. It's an automatic response. And anxiety is always about something that hasn't happened yet. It's always in the future. Always. It's never about what's happening right now. Anxiety is something that could happen or may happen or should happen. Just as depression tends to refer to stuff that's happened in the past. I'm often saying, you know, that people who, um, uh, who, who are, are anxious, they tend to futurize. And I guess the people who are depressed, they kind of pasteurize. <laughs> I think the, 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 the issue here is they're not in the present moment. When they're in the present moment, uh, then, and, and to give you an example with, say, anxiety, how that works, what we train people to do is to say, how do you know you're anxious? Where do you feel anxiety in your body? We call that a somatic marker. So they might say, oh, uh, my heart races, uh, my stomach churns, I have the clammy feelings. And, and um, these are symptoms which people uh, report when they, when they turn up for, for help. And very often they're medicated. You know, people are given um, beta blockers for the, for the racing heart and uh, antidepressants and various other and the benzodiazepines have long-term adverse effects on the brain. And in the UK and the US, the doctors are prescribing them like there's no end to it. Completely. But the thing is, you see, what they don't know and what they don't tell the patient, and the patient needs to know that these are perfectly normal responses of the body readying itself for fight or flight. The heart races faster to pump blood around the body. The stomach churns because uh, the system suspends digestion when it's threatened. Um, they have peculiar sensations in the in the stomach and in the in the, the, the epigastrium and also in the external limbs, because it pumps blood away from the viscera, the soft viscera, into the arms and legs, into the extremities, getting ready to fight or run away. Fight and flight is a real thing. It's not it's not a metaphor. And over the long term, it elevates cortisol and inflammation and oxidative stress. Yeah. And those are pathways that will take us down toward any disease and will affect our life expectancy. So getting more in the parasympathetic, uh, you know, which, you know, when we're relaxed after a big meal, watching TV, our digestion is kind of chugging along and we're relaxed, our heart's slower. That's pretty important for long term health. It is, but we also know that, that when that uh, fight-and-flight response is there, that the blood in the brain, uh, we now know from the, the uh, fMRI scans, that the blood is, is pumped away from the prefrontal cortex, the logical, rational side, into the, the, um, uh, the uh, limbic system, basically, the fight-and-flight area, to ready itself for action. So we become physically strong, but we become dumb. Stop. <laughs> We stop thinking. <laughs> so I think in most emotions, uh, we kind of stop thinking or run by yeah. something else. Exactly. We, we like people. We very much encourage people to practice that uh, technique that, that Khaled mentioned when he did the, the, um, uh, the talk, which you know, I think is, is, is an important one, and that's the resonant frequency breathing, where people have a normal breath in through the nose and a longer breath out through the mouth. And the ideal uh, repetition, uh, number of repetitions is um, uh, six per minute. So that's 10 seconds for the in and out breath. So it's say, you know, it's, it's in, normal breath in through the nose and then a longer breath out. And that rhythm 
uh, tends to equalize a lot of the um, the interaction of a lot of the systems, particularly the, the brain and the car- the the, the, uh, the uh, cardiac response, and basically the heart brain link, which is very important. I, I don't uh, we don't have time to go into, but it's all the Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, because breathing is very important, like in the Eastern traditions, like pranayama will help with breathing. And I think things such as singing, meditating, and chanting kind of get us all in unison and help us get into a much more healthy, parasympathetic, relaxed state. Uh, One of the things I'm curious... Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say one thing is that being in a relaxed state, which is what we all think is is the way we need to go, is very often not the way to go. Um, this is another thing that happens um, with uh, stress, is that we think that if we remove the stressors that people are going to get better, and we find out that they don't. There's uh, quite a lot of interesting studies where they've removed all the stressors from highly stressed people and they get worse. Because what's lacking is the ability to cope. It's the, the self-efficacy that needs to develop, not that we relax out and chill out all the time, but that we actually have the ability to cope and, and the knowledge and the self-awareness that uh, we can cope when these things um, uh, come our way. I've seen so many patients that don't have the uh, ability to cope or no self-survival skills. I mean, they just give it all up and have no efficacy at all. And teaches them going to bad ends. It teaches them. You know, unfortunately, modern Western medicine doesn't have anything to do with that. One of our students has started a new scheme here, which we're very delighted. He's actually a pharmacist. And he started a new scheme where he's talking about stress inoculation. He says, if we vaccinate people against flu, I don't see why I shouldn't have vaccinated them against stress. So he's running these annual things where people come and they learn these te- some of these techniques to use. And they hopefully using it through the year. Well, so, like in biology, there's a hormetic effect. You inject a little bit of the bad thing and it just gets things going. So it's much better in the long run. Sure, sure. Sure. But we do need to know that we can or believe that we can deal with something. And that we have some sort of um, uh, self-efficacy. Otherwise, we do tend to give up. A couple of things. Oh, pardon me. Go ahead. I was going to say there are three stages to three three responses. Uh, Stephen Porges, who you probably know, he he referred to this. The first stage where people try and deal with something is from a social level. And that's a logical, rational, prefrontal cortex bit. Then it hits the, if that's not resolved, then it goes into the fight and flight response. Uh, that's the limbic section. But the worst part, and that those are the people that you're talking about, is what's generally regarded as a, as a, um, uh, a kind of reptilian response, is where it goes down into the brainstem and people freeze. And they're unable to move, they're unable to think of anything, they're unable to respond. And that is the most dangerous state of all, because people die if, uh, if they're in that state too long. And they're certainly going to, they can, uh, the, the, the risk is increased because they're not going to look after themselves or do any of the things that they should be doing. So we need to learn how to get them out of these states. Um, okay, I think we're getting, you know, fairly close to the end. So what I'm interested in, this is very interesting parts of NLP by the direction the eyes are looking. You can tell if they're thinking about things or thinking about the future or feeling it, etc. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we get to the final wrap-up? Um, well, we do use that as well, but not in quite the same way. Um, we use it to see what, um, what areas is missing. For example, if people look down and to the to the the right, they tend to be more physiologically, you know, more somatically oriented. If um, if something is missing, 
Um, if their eyes are not uh, moving in the full range of things, then we tend to look at what's missing uh, and we see whether they need the resources there. Francine Shapiro, who did EMDR, yes. she's done this. You see, NLP has known this particular technique for a while. What they would say if someone had anxiety uh, or some particular, maybe depression, the idea was to hold the, the thought, the feeling, and then to move the eyes through all the, the areas, you know, top left, uh, top right, then middle left, middle right, and then down, left, down, right, and repeatedly do that while holding the emotion strong, strongly. And that tends to blow it out. And it seems that um, uh, Francine came across that as well when she um, was, the story goes, she was going to a car and feeling some negative feeling. She was moving her eyes backwards and forth and went away, and that's the basis of it. But it's a similar thing. And Khaled can answer that. It's something about the innovation of the of the brain. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. Have you noticed when people are thinking, their eyes are moving? And uh, um, we have things called cranial nerves in the brain, which is an extension of the brain that, that goes uh, forward. And one-third of our cranial nerves go to the eye. So it, when you, it's not surprising, really, that when we're thinking, the eyes are moving. And the eye movements in NLP, they're a bit of a generalization. They're, they're, they're a pattern that gives that uh, it's observed that when people visualize, they tend to look upwards. That doesn't mean that every time someone's looking upward, they're visualizing. So it's, it's just a pattern. It's a generalization. If they're looking down into the right, they might be accessing a feeling. If they're looking down into the left, they're having an internal dialogue. Uh, if they're looking side to side, they could be uh, accessing auditory, the hearing part of the brain. Uh, but this isn't to be taken as um, some uh, kind of absolute, mm. kind of a gospel truth thing. This is a generalization. It's an observation. And well, all generalizations are false. It's just kind absolutely. of interesting. And absolutely. you kind of extend this to posture and speech, like a visual person might sit with their head up and uh, uh, might have a high-pitched, rapid-fire speech, variation of tone. It was just very interesting things you pointed out in the book. But absolutely, all generalizations are false. But they're fun to play with. But all yeah. models, all models, and we should insist that medical NLP... Uh, like NLP, like um, our health system. They're all models. And all models are false to some degree or another. It's just that some, some models are more useful than others. That's why well, we, we keep changing ours all the time. We have four minutes left, so I'd like you to summarize. You give a uh, takeaway tips for our listeners and how you can learn more on the surface on this subject and just generalize, generally say things you feel are important for our audience to take away. We have two rules um, that we say that people should always observe that the health practitioner, the, the medical NLP practitioner, should, no matter what happens, the first time they sit down in front of someone, um, and we can also apply this to ourselves, this rule one is always reduce the stress level of the person in front of you, and rule two is always follow rule one. <laughs> That's the most important thing, is to understand that if that level of anxiety and limbic hang-up is high enough, people are not going to take on anything on board. They're not going to understand anything. They're not going to respond. We need to bring that down. That is why we have a responsibility to ourselves and to each other and to our families to look at that. When you speak about things like the meditation, you think about um, recreation, ways that are going to bring down that that uh, limbic temperature, that's what we should be doing. That's the number one requirement we need. Any other uh, takeaway tips or information you want to impart to our listeners? Remember how you keep the communication we talked at the beginning. 
it's our communication inside as well. It's our internal dialogue as well. Um, if we, you want your client to think in a particular way, and to, you, you mentioned incongruence earlier on where you're, you're saying something but feeling something different inside. If we have the internal communication aligned with what we're communicating externally, we're more likely to then pass this on, having engaged with our clients. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, and uh, the t- uh, recap on the technique that the, the uh, report technique that Garner mentioned earlier, uh, all, all of these things get us into, into sync. So, you know, we want to get from the heart sync, S-I-N-K, to heart sync, S-Y-N-C. <laughs> Absolutely. Lovely. <laughs> Yes, I believe if our hearts are in sync and the energy flows clearly back and forth, that is certainly conducive to helping a person find uh, their inner resources and help them on their path to healing. Certainly, you've pointed out that the connection between the body, the mind, and the heart is complex beyond what we can imagine. So there are certain things in our healing that are subtle that are important to pay attention to. Any more comments on that? Well, it's important that we go there first. It's important that we look after and learn to manage our own states before we start trying to get other people and patients to manage their state. Because what we now know without a shadow of a doubt is when we talk about sync, heart sync, um, S-Y-N-C-H, is that the dominant brainwave pattern will rule in a relationship and people will come into sync. Um, It's particularly noticeable in cardiologists and in, in cardiac surgery if the surgeon is, is all over the place, there's uh, less likelihood of the patient. Yes, I believe that, like, as I was pointing out before, singing and meditation and stuff, the brain waves and the heart waves do get sort of in sync. So I think it's important we get synced in the when we're connecting with others. And we're coming to an end now, so I want to recommend to our listeners, go find out more about this, how we can be in sync with ourselves and those around us, and so we can help others get well, we can help ourselves be well, and above all, go out and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.